Hello and welcome to the second episode of This Week in, our new Balls.ie podcast, where we look back at this week in a random year. Obviously, we've got no actual sport to, to look forward to or to enjoy or to experience at the moment, so we're looking back through the archives at different years. Last week, we looked back on this week or last week as it was as it is now in 2009 where it was a pretty easy easy year to pick to pick 2009 because we had the Irish Grand Slam and we had Bernard Dunn winning uh, we had lots of stuff going on in the Premier League as well so it was a really good show you can listen back to that uh, this week we're going to look at 2004 this week in 2004 there was a lot happening delighted to be joined once again by PJ Brown who was on last week's show and for the first time by Mark Farley PJ you're yes. back once again you did you enjoy your uh, trip down memory lane last week so much so that you've demanded to be back on today's show <laughs> I, I re yeah I loved last week it was uh it really got the endorphins flowing I felt thinking back to those to those uh, great wins so uh yeah I'm uh, I'm ready to have that uh that feeling again we decided to go for it again and Mark uh Myself and PJ are a little bit older. 2004 is a little bit more in our wheelhouse. I wondered who else we were going to pull out of the to, to join us on the show now because, you know, we don't want to go too far back and thought, oh, you know, Mark's a little bit too young for 2004 show. Turns out, no, you're at the exact age where this was your super nerd phase as of being a kid. Yeah, it was like when you were talking about it yesterday, going, oh, what was you 2004? I was like, oh, I, can, I can barely remember any of this like I remember the Triple Crown season but I don't remember it like I couldn't tell you which team we played first or I just remember discovering that the Triple Crown was a thing really <laughs> and then we won it and then I look back and in the Champions League games I was like oh yeah I don't know we just talked about one game in particular we are talking about uh, Deportivo La Coruña against Milan and I was like as a standard loan thing I couldn't really remember it and then when I looked into the last 16 I was like oh yeah this was the time when you're at that age when you can name every player on every team that's in the Champions League. You just have a complete, like, you've nothing else to do in your life. So, except for look at the uh, the highlight reels of Walter Pandiani and all these lads. So, um, <laughs> it actually turns out that I probably know more about the 2004 Champions League quarterfinals than I do about this year's. Well, um, well, we'll if, find, never we'll, take, if it ever happened. Yeah, exactly. We'll find out if we, when we talk about it in a few minutes. But yeah, you mentioned 2004 Champions League quarterfinals. That's one of the things that happened this week. It was the first legs, but seeing as we're unlikely to revisit 2004 again in a couple of weeks, we will talk about the ties in general because the second leg was where a lot of the drama was and, of course, the season in general. There was a lot happening in football this season. The maddest Champions League of all time. This is the Champions League that ended up being Porto and Monaco in the final. We'd already had Mourinho knocking out... Um, uh, uh, Manchester United in the previous round then you had Chelsea against the invincible Arsenal team there's been a bit of talk about that recently actually since Liverpool lost uh, last to, lost to Watford uh, a lot of talk about whether Arsenal's biggest game of the season was in fact their defeat to Chelsea we had the Milan Deportivo Mark's alluded to that we'll get into that in a minute absolute madness we had Madrid and Monaco which was a 5-all aggregate draw and Monaco won the away goals and we had Porto and Leon. also at this exact same time this week 28th of March we had Arsenal playing Manchester United in the Premier League. Arsenal were uh, not quite wrapped up the title yet, but um, they definitely needed to get something at Highbury against United and did that. We'll talk about that. And, as Mark mentioned, there's uh, the small matter of the Irish Triple Crown. The first one in 19 years, 2004, beat Scotland this week. We'll talk about the whole campaign, which was actually, uh, the more I look back on it today, lads, it was just a, such an interesting interesting Irish team and an interesting time for Irish rugby and also this week we had like there was some GEA league stuff going on a lot of things we're not going to touch on everything but Padraig Harrington was one shot away from winning 
the Players' Championship at Sawgrass. Missed out to Adam Scott. Was just a, a really good Scott put away from making the playoff. It would have been his biggest win at that stage in his career. He's still, of course, three years away at this stage from uh, breaking his major duck and kind of becoming the super superstar that he, he is in Ireland ever since. But, lads, before we get into the, the sport... Hang on, um, Mick. Sorry, you're just first okay. over there. Are we are we not covering Longford against Fermanagh in Division One B of the National League? Other than seeing that 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 Longford and Fermanagh were in Division One, I didn't have a huge amount to go on it. But yeah, I'm not preparing this for half an hour now. Well, do you know what, Mark? There, there's all there's always the Mark's corner part of the podcast where I can go over to you with anything you want. And if you want to talk about Longford and Fermanagh for half an hour, you're more than welcome. We might stop recording, but we'll give yeah, you that opportunity. But before we start, lads, before we get into the sport, including Longford versus Fermanagh in Division 1, unbelievably, um, something else happened this week in 2004 in Ireland, where I don't know whether this is a source of pride for you, lads, the way it is for me, but on March 29, 2004, Ireland passed a law becoming the first country in the entire world to ban smoking in all work- workplaces. So there you go. PJ, you're you're more of my age, right? So I don't know if Mark was spending too much time in pubs around this time. But between when I legally started going into pubs in 2002 or even before that, uh, until this time in 2004, the smell of cigarette smoke off my clothes <laughs> whenever the next day, whatever, even, with it into, even through a wash sometimes, I we're so far removed from it now. We're 16 years later. It's actually so hard to believe that people used to just smoke in pubs. Whatever about other workplaces. Uh, yeah, I, I remember this so well. And the shock of Irish people realising that they needed to take care of their body odour on nights out a little bit better. Because you could actually, sm- you could all of a sudden in pubs, you could smell everything. You, before yeah. that, you, you really, everything was masked by the smell of smoke. And that yeah. was kind of, or at the time, I was... So I was, I was in Ireland when this happened and I went traveling to, uh, went traveling like shortly after and I was in New Zealand where you could still smoke. It was a few, they were a while away yet from passing like a similar law and like the shock of going from a few months in Ireland of no smoke in a pub to be once again being filled in a pub. It was, uh, yeah, that was, that was something. Yeah. What gets released from the body after, uh, you know, five or six points of stout suddenly came into real clear view mm. having kind of been largely ignored for many many years uh the the mad thing though about this all as well was how absolutely adamant people were that it wouldn't work you know that there was no way people were gonna stop smoking in the pubs no matter what law they brought in and uh maybe i don't know maybe that's a sure you can't even drink in the pubs these days lads but uh you know maybe that maybe that's a lesson that uh, laws do eventually kind of then tend to work. But enough of that. Let's get on to a little bit of this. The seconds tick away, and Ireland are in command, and Ireland are going to win their seventh triple crown. Just put it out of play, and they know the title is theirs, this mythical trophy. Yes, look at that. <laughs> Let's enjoy it, lads. And Humphreys puts it into the upper deck of the East End of the crowd. Rise to Ireland who win their seventh triple crown. And a terrific performance at the end of the day by a very, very talented squad. There you go. That was Jim Sherwin, who in itself is a blast in the past. 
uh, on this week in 2004 as he commentated on Ireland beating Scotland for our first uh, tri- our first triple crown in uh, 19 years. So 1982-85 were the previous two. And I don't know about you, PJ, but uh, and Mark, you were saying maybe that wasn't something that came into your... Uh, that you understood properly until probably much later on. But for me, growing up watching rugby, it was just this obsession in Ireland with the Triple Crown and these two teams of the 80s that had won it. And it's funny now looking back and everything's about the Grand Slam or even like the World Cup or whatever, but the Triple Crown, even in 2004, was still such a big deal. Like, Yeah. Yeah. It really only kind of like, I guess when they won it that year, that it really came into... I, I became really aware of, of how big a thing it was. I like I'm not, I'm not sure like what probably like Mark. I, I did, really didn't realize that that yeah. that either. Um, the the thing from like watching if watching these games that really stands out the most is how many players are wearing gloves. It's incredible. Was 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 the ball like a little bit slippier back then or something? And wh- why don't players wear his gloves? As, like when did when did that era stop? I'm I'm. I don't remember exactly. I don't have like a delineation there in my head as the. This is when they wore gloves. This is when they didn't wear gloves. Yeah, I I, I couldn't tell you to be honest. It does stick out though. Yeah, I do remember thinking to myself a year last year, or the year before, going, "Why do rugby players not have to wear gloves all, uh, anymore? Like, can they suddenly just catch the ball in the in, in the wettest of conditions? I don't know why." The triple crown thing is strange as well because it was a massive deal. It wasn't a massive deal, and then it became a massive deal when we had a chance to actually do it. And then it just faded away again. I mean, how many triple crowns have we won since 2004? Well, that's the thing. We won it again in 2006 and 2007. I think once we'd won three out of four years, it just became something. It kind like, of a bit, yeah. became a bit blasé about it then, I think. You like know? in 09 and, and 18, I know the way the order of the games go by necessity of won the, to win the Grand Slam, we had automatically won the triple crown, beating Wales, yeah. beating England. But like... Um, I don't know. I think if we ended up not winning a championship or not winning a Grand Slam now and yet won the Triple Crown, we wouldn't but, give a toss. Yeah, we have won a Triple Crown since and since the 2007. And I can't even remember what year it was, but it was a year where we blew something like, you know, against France or whatever and we didn't win the championship. And I think we like stopped an England Grand Slam or something and we won the Triple Crown. And it was a bit kind of. Now, I could even be wrong about that, but I think it goes no, to I show you wrong. that I don't even remember yeah, particularly a, what year it was. Was it 11? Well, we Maybe. won triple triple crowns 06, 07, 04, 06, 07, 2009, 2018. Okay, so we didn't win one outside of those years then. No. So I'm completely wrong. So uh, that's why I'm only focusing on 2004 here, lads. But it was class. Research for. Yeah. <laughs> but that's back I'm, when triple crowns were triple crowns, you know? I've people lost. were smoking in pubs and triple crowns or triple crowns. <laughs> yeah, people had like, you know, when this was on March 27th, this match was, people had two more full days of smoking in pubs and my God, they smoked the heads off themselves in celebration of Ireland's triple crown. I have a, few, I have a good few observations from this game and I'm sure you do too, but I just want to kind of get to what happened over the course of like Ireland winning this triple crown. So we beat Wales, uh, lost to France in the first match, pretty poor performance, coming off the World Cup in 2003 where they'd lost to France in the quarterfinal as well with another performance so things weren't looking good for eddie things were you know it's sort of hard to believe though given what happened for the next three or four years but uh you know people weren't too happy with what was going on and then all of a sudden it turned around they hammered wales in lands end road i was at that match like absolute trouncing then um beat england and twickenham this england team just won the world cup it was their first game back at twickenham did a two away matches up until then and uh, Ireland beat them playing really, really, really good rugby. They scored 
um, a try by Gervin Dempsey that I honestly think might be one of the best tries that Ireland have ever scored. Then they go in, they beat Italy, and they have Scotland at home for the Triple Crown. This is a Scotland team that, you know, weren't up to too much. But what I didn't remember until I watched this game was that it was 16-all deep into the second half. And then all of a sudden Ireland ran amok and won 37-16 and scenes unfolded and so on and so forth. So it was a triple crown. It kind of launched a sort of a, a, a little bit of an era, um, you know, of the three and four years, as I said, and sort of all leading up to the 2007 World Cup where we thought we were going to win it. You know, a bit familiar. <laughs> but uh, this, I think, was, I don't know, looking back on it, lads, like for me anyway like there was a there was a peak excitement about this as the year went on and the different things about this team and the type of rugby they were playing that i don't think we'd ever seen an irish rugby team do before the center partnership i mean this is really kind of like the early years of the kind of the nascent kind of years of the the darcy and o'driscoll center partnership yeah. i think yeah darcy's this is kind of gordon darcy's first six nations as a starting center so yeah, he made his first start in the game against France when O'Driscoll was out injured, yeah. actually. So it's actually, that's the key thing. It's like this centre partnership was the big thing that sort of developed how the way we played and everything like that. But it kind of came about by accident because Darcy played 13 against France, played quite well. O'Driscoll came back into the team and Kevin Maggs is gone and the two of them played almost as two 13s at the time, uh, you know, uh, in, in the other matches. And were absolutely phenomenal and kind of just like launched Ireland and it's funny because people will like think of what the Darcy O'Driscoll partnership became over the years was this rock solid midfield defensive based but in 2004 they were two kind of like glory hound number 13 you know Philippe Sella style Mm. players who were just breaking tackles all over the place and it was just very much attack based you know and it was just an exciting style of rugby that I don't know if we'd ever seen an Irish team do the the first try in that game is it's it's such a good try the 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 Ireland's first try in the game it's like a kind of O'Driscoll passing to Dempsey and Dempsey's off to Horgan and back to Darcy Maybe, maybe like a little hint of a forward pass, but uh, from O'Driscoll, it yeah. was a brilliant pass, but yeah. it was eight yards forward. <laughs> you like he, he, on, the, on the commentary, Tony Ward just kind of dismisses it as a forward pass because it's a great try. Ah, can't be forward. It was a great try. The, the it's also Darcy's first try for Ireland. This is his tenth yeah. cap. His first try for Ireland. Exactly, yeah, and he played so well all the way through. He ended up winning two thousand and four uh, Player of the Six Nations and like this was his best performance by a mile he got two tries but he kind of like he made his first ever start for ireland uh, as you said he had like you know however five or six caps or whatever made his first start in that france match and just grew and it's funny i was watching a few bit of france highlights and it was like darcy was electric and he was doing things that no other irish player was doing but he was missing tackles in midfield and it was just the opposite of what gordon darcy would become you know six seven eight years later but uh you know um he was just uh he was just an exciting player, you know, in that way. And then he didn't, like, he kind of broke through in that Scotland game and, you know, got those two tries. And I think even if you just hear on Jim Sherwin's commentary for his second try, which kind of sealed it, the sense of excitement that it was Darcy who did it, you know. He was just, he just became an absolute star, you know, overnight, really, over the course of those few weeks. This was, um, this was like, I think, uh, looking back at the game as well, it kind of is a snapshot of what Ireland's going to like when we, going to look like when we uh, finally get back to normality after everybody leaves the house and hasn't had a haircut in two months. Um, oh, because you've got the bod hair, you've got the Shane Horgan hair, you've got the 
uh, Shane Bourne hair. That's like even Paul O'Connell and Gervin Dempsey, two lads famous for having shaved no heads. <laughs> Both of them had full head of hair. It was like this is what this is what we've looked forward to, lads. Saying they had full head full heads of hair is you're being quite generous there, Mark. <laughs> Sorry, they, they had they, they, they bought hair had, growth. They bought it. There was like it was there was receding hairlines, but they, it was also what was left was wild. Yeah, exactly. I'm gonna read out my notes here, lads, and I'm not gonna hold back because you know I'm one of Brian O'Driscoll's biggest fans. You know, I uh, but I have to call it like it is, right? My notes say here, Brian O'Driscoll's hair thundering disgrace. He's got it wasn't it wasn't long highlights. It's too long. He's spending all of his time in interviews pushing it back or shaking it back. There's there's a notions element to that haircut that's just outrageous. You have to be with the times, though, Mick, like, because. This was the first, I would say this was the birth of Ireland rugby fandom. This was when the Irish rugby team changed from a load of lads playing rugby to like the cast of Ocean's Eleven or something. Like there's a photo on Sportsfile, and even we can tweet it out when we put the podcast up, of like Brian and Eddie O'Driscoll leading out the team. And it's like one of those, you know, like a montage. Sullivan, of, yeah. Like, I don't know if it's like, what did I say? Eddie O'Driscoll. <laughs> Eddie O'Driscoll, Eddie O'Sullivan. It sounds like it's a character like, who's in Ocean's Row. <laughs> uh, do you know like in a movie where like, there's a montage of people getting ready for something and then they're all kind of, they've done the training or they're, they're going to do something big, got a big plan about to pull it off and they're all just walking out together with like the vice or something playing behind them like in Hot Rod <laughs> and like everyone's walking behind them. That's what it looks like. And if O'Driscoll didn't have the bleach blonde locks, I don't think it would look as look as look as much like that. Like it, it wouldn't have the ho- same X factor, the same Hollywood X factor. I yeah. think that's it. It was something. His haircut was not the hair we deserved, but the hair we needed right then. Okay, there was a there was it was a time the early two thousands into the mid two thousands where you know big hair upwards maybe a little bit kind of shaggy but in in that team we had shane byrne who's most famous for having a mullet we had shane horgan whose nickname is shaggy we had you know reggie corrigan's hair all over the place you know paul O'Connor, as you said with a main east to be malcolm o'kelly who you know would you, you you'd expect him to have a haircut you could set your watch to no uh, uh, like complete uh shaggy locks yeah. Um, even Rog Rog had a Rog. Rog was one of them people who it looked like he tried to grow his hair long but it just kept getting bigger and bigger like it was just turning into a perm and then lest we forget Donnick O'Callaghan oh yeah exactly That's, yeah Donnick O'Callaghan yeah he, he was uh, he was the kind of sub second row in there and he had yeah. amazing hair back then but like I mean we haven't touched on John Hayes who had one of the great haircuts yeah. uh, the, John Hayes is what it's all about here lads do you hold that John Hayes is, is in this game 74. <laughs> oh my God, is he, is he in his 30s? He's, thir- he's 30 in this game, right? Right. It's his 44th cap. He's not even halfway through his career. <laughs> John Hayes got 105 caps. He played on for another seven and a half years after this game. Jesus. <laughs> what a legend. Speaking of, Do- speaking of people who uh, famously have no hair as well, even Peter Stringer had hair back he's, then. Yeah, it more was a hair. very still, short haircut. Still, still a crew cut, yeah. Yeah. And it was like, it doesn't even kind of look exactly like hair. It looks like he's gotten the top of his head and put it onto the top of his head, if that makes sense. It's like he's he's Peter Stringer wearing a ball cap. There was a moment, I just want to go back to John Hayes. That's brilliant. I was going back to John Hayes. There was a moment where Stringer threw him the ball, actually. And it was like he was in the pocket. I don't think he was expecting the ball. And it just looked like he, for a second, a split second, that he was going to drop a goal. 
and I <laughs> promise he didn't. But there was <laughs> there was sort of it was the only time you would ever see a pass like that would be to someone trying to drop goal, and then you realise it was John Hayes. And I don't know. There's a part of me that thinks he thought about it for a second, you know, because he did hesitate before he ran with the ball. And would that have been the greatest moment in Irish sports history? I think the answer is undoubtedly yes. Couple more observations. Staying I, with the kind of fashion team, Mark, was this Ireland's best ever rugby jersey? Yes, the collar up for me made it. Uh, it was the last of the great, like, we're not going to make these completely skin tight and uh, aerodynamic or whatever it is that they're doing with jerseys these days. This was a big, yeah, it was definitely, and it was, again, like I said, this was the start of Irish rugby fandom. This was the jersey that everybody owned. Everybody yeah. started buying Ireland rugby jerseys around now. And like it was a great era for jerseys. Like the Scotland jersey was lovely. The France jersey was great. So like it has to be said, it was it was the big white collar. It was uh, it was a, a type of green that looked washed. Like it yeah. wasn't one that had faded in the wash because it was already faded. So it lasts forever in a day. And uh, I have to say, I was a big fan of it. Yeah, the green, the, the colour of the green for me was key. The collar was class. And then they even, they kept it for the next one or whatever, but there was almost too much white in the next jersey. This was the sort of perfect uh, blend of the two. Maybe the one before, actually, as well. You think Keith Wood scoring in the foot and mouth here. That was a pretty nice one as well. But they were all kind of the same. The Canterbury sort of gave us sort of three jerseys in a row that were very, very similar. But uh, I don't know if we'll ever get back then. I don't know. The shades of greens we're hitting these days, PJ, I don't even want to think about it. It, it makes me sick. It was, it was peak Canto back then as well. That was when everybody had Canterbury traction bombs and used to be able, like, they hadn't, couldn't you open the buttons the whole way up or were they Adidas ones? But anyway, everybody owned a pair of Canterbury rugby traction bottoms back then. The one thing I, like, I do like the, how low the collar, the, the kind of the V-neck collar is, but everyone's, like, in the game, a lot of players are wearing this, uh, like a, underlayer it has a horrible orange color and it's black yeah. it, it 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 doesn't it's not a great it's not a great fashion combination we wouldn't be seeing that nowadays you would I agree probably you, aware of that yeah i think people need to be a little bit like you know anthony foley probably my sporting hero one of my favorite people in the world wearing the monster scrum hat playing for ireland just i don't know the colors were just all wrong uh used to be uh tyrone howe and o'connell were all wearing a kind of a dark blue and yellow kind of number as well it's just yeah. and the, all the under armor stuff was all as you said gray and orange or whatever like did these lads not even just think about all they were thinking about their hair too much and they weren't thinking <laughs> about how they how they looked in their uh i don't even know what color boots they were but they weren't thinking about it enough i have to say very disappointing looking back on this ireland team um few other thoughts lads that i have so the jersey uh the hair old lands road was the perfect place for a game of rugby mm. it has to be said like it was one of those stadiums that every time the bbc would have a go with it before every single six nations match oh this old rockety old place you know falling down it hasn't changed in a hundred years and all um and then talk about how much they love it as you know steve Ryder's wig was getting blown off standing <laughs> down on the pitch you know but um i still think there was an atmosphere like nothing else there i don't know i think Definitely for soccer, it probably was definitely time to move on. But for rugby, there was there's just something missing. I think from not having games there anymore. Um, there is a wildness to to Lansdowne Road at that stage. I, I I'm not sure what it is, but it, it does seem more raucous. Like that, the, the yeah. crowd seems more up for it and kind of more involved and stuff. It was like you know, like if we, if we were beating Scotland now, people don't really care anymore because you know it doesn't it doesn't mean as much anymore. I guess. Yeah, other, it's very very easy to go and get your four points 
in a paper whatever holder in the Aviva Stadium these days uh you were stuck in a kind of a terrace (laughs) you know no matter where you were you were kind of in the terrace Mm. in the old Lansdowne and you were just freezing your ass off and watching the match the other thing you you know uh, during the game that the coaches there's no one sitting you know in a booth behind a lap behind like a sponsored laptop anymore they're they're all in the stand me I don't know was it at the time would they have had headsets yet I'm not. I'm not quite sure, but like you can see, you see like uh, Maddie Williams, the so, Scotland coach. Yeah. Maddie Williams, the Scotland coach, like in in that game, and he just he just sitting there in a stand, like uh. That's next on my list. Matt Williams was the Scotland coach. Matt Williams, the of 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 uh, Ireland, our wee fame. I I knew he was Scotland coach. Obviously, I didn't remember what era it was, but this idea that Matt Williams was coming back to Dublin to deny Ireland the Six Nations as he sat there so passively. All the way through the game, and and Scotland won. It was just something I'd completely forgotten about. And this is what I kind of lo- do love about doing this show, even though it's into the second week. It's just these little things that just hit you that you would never have remembered again. As Brian O'Brien, as Brian O'Brien, great name, Mark. Yeah, Brian O'Brien, the, the Irish rugby team manager at the time, uh, which I remember back then as well when he suddenly appeared on. I'm like, wait a minute, what? Because that was back when, as a teenager, you didn't understand the difference between yeah. a manager and you a head You thought Eddie head O'Driscoll coach. was the manager. Yeah, Eddie O'Driscoll. Like, <laughs> surely Eddie O'Driscoll's manager of this team. I have no idea now who the Ireland team manager is. Is it still Brian O'Brien? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, actually. It's a fair point. Maybe they've got rid of it. Uh, yeah, that was an old... I remember I, I, Donald Lenehan was like the Lions manager about three times because he just like organised a good... Uh, a good pre-match dinner I think (laughs) (laughs) I don't know Um, one other thought then lads I'll get to some of yours before we move on to the football but uh, Malcolm O'Kelly who by the way was unbelievable all the way through the Six Nations when you watch the highlights of it like he sticks out a mile he was playing like a winger but he had a a high tackle on a Scottish guy coming through in the first half that was like referee goes penalty and no more said about it that these days I think he would have got six months for I did notice that he watching the highlights, aren't you? Yeah. Just shows you how the game shows. Like you talk about last week, PJ, about the props and the hookers still being on at the end of the match, yeah. which I noticed again today. It's just like the game of rugby has changed so much. Like, you know, I think that the main, I don't know what you guys, the main thing you take away from, I think, Mark, for you, it's the hair. I'm not sure about you, PJ. For me, it's, you know, the way Ireland were playing back then and the, the expansive style of rugby and the way they were getting the backs in if you see again i mentioned that try against england but the passes from both darcy and o'driscoll for that try is just something that we're just not doing and i haven't seen them do since or definitely not before you know it's just playing the most exciting rugby that we've ever we've ever had mm. there was like eddie eddie was very good at, eddie was, was a very good attacking coach they, they, they always seem to play like good attacking rugby and maybe defence was what let him down then but yeah I, I, I guess before this before O'Driscoll and Darcy we did have a lot of you know not not to not to knock Kevin Maggs too much but like what's Kevin, the phrase what's, 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 what's the phrase well crash ball to Kevin Maggs is his full name <laughs> <laughs> you know I mean like that that was like those the kind of mid to late 90s it's it, it's what I like I, what I think of when I think of Irish rugby is Kind of similar to now, it is that what like that one-off kind of runner is the it's the crash ball, and the, the, they never like the, the pass is never the option. And this was kind of starting, like in my memory anyway, it kind of started to change that. Yeah, for sure. And I don't know if it ever if if 
it unfortunately did change back at some stage. But as you did mention, like the game has changed so many t- so many times over the the years. Just on the rugby then as well, there was actually a brilliant match that night between France and England. It was on like eight o'clock or, or something in the evening, and it was you know the uh, the original Le Crunch maybe. France beat them to win the Grand Slam. England needed to win by I think seven or eight points to win the championship. Uh, France won 24-21. That France team was amazing. If you think back of all the names you think about in French rugby of, uh, you know, Josian and Dominici and Clerc and uh, Harnordeke and Betson and Olivier Magne, Elisalde, I don't know, I could go on for ages. They were just uh, Yashvili. All these players were, were uh, on that French team um, and they were absolutely brilliant and that was actually a great match that I kind of do remember. Um, on to football though. Whoa, 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 whoa. Oh, you've got more on the football, rugby? There's one thing. How have we gotten through 20 minutes talking about this Ireland-Scotland game without mentioning? You said if John Hayes had scored a drop goal, it would have been the greatest moment in the history of Irish rugby. I think we got the greatest moment in the history of Irish rugby after that game in Gordon oh, Darcy God, yeah. and Brian O'Driscoll's post-match interview, where uh, <laughs> I don't think it works as an audio thing because it's all visual. Do you know what? I will have a I will have a, a little listen to it because just what happens at the end. Now Michael Lister is in the bowels of the stadium with that terrible centre pair, Gordon Darcy and Brian O'Driscoll. Yeah, thanks, Tom. These two gentlemen that are here with me were 11 years of age between them when Ireland last won the Triple Crown in 1985. Couldn't that was something very special for you? Yeah, well, for the whole team. Um, yeah. You know, for, in, in my case, it's been six years building to this moment. Some of the older lads, it's been 10, 11 years. So, you know, it's special in everybody's own right. Well, you've had a fantastic day today. Congratulations to you. The other man that's with you here, he's doubly thirsty. He has two bottles today with him. Brian O'Driscoll, well done to you. That was obviously tough out there. And you have the bruises to show. It was. It was thirsty work, all right. Um, Michael. <clears throat> Uh, they are the happy men. Everybody's thirsty around here, George. Yeah, absolutely. I must say um, that uh, um, <laughs> I thought it was a great match, really, myself. And uh, I was under pressure a lot of the time, and that made a very thirsty work, I have to say. <laughs> you not a trick. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right so obviously people listen going what the hell's going on here look it up on youtube basically gordon darcy's getting man of the match uh brian o'driscoll is obviously the ireland captain that just won the triple crown for some reason michael lester's the person doing the interview just <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, a pleasant surprise uh, but uh, the two lads have tracy must have been off that week uh there's something up when you when the thing opens when the interview starts because Gordon Darcy's drinking out of a bottle of Powerade and Brian O'Driscoll is carrying two bottles of Powerade, one blue one, one yellowy orange, yellow one we call it. And Darcy takes a swig of the Powerade and then O'Driscoll takes a swig of the Powerade <laughs> and then literally every time one of them stopped talking to take a drink of Powerade and it's so funny because you can I don't know how they managed. To not, there was one. There was at one point O'Driscoll bent over so that his head literally was below the camera. He was off screen. I think at that point he doubled over to try and stop himself laughing. But like they're clearly doing this on purpose. Uh, and like even Lester's like, oh, it's thirsty work out there or whatever. To, to uh, he was yeah. Lester was like, you know, I'm gonna get in on the joke here as opposed to being the butt of the joke. I think he yeah. got on pretty early. O'Driscoll, Darcy's such a pro though because yeah. he's answering the questions. The most boring 
answers alive and then taking the swig and every time he does it he cracks O'Driscoll O'Driscoll can't handle it he's actually he gives the game away way too quickly and too easily but he's just like he's such a child he's so excited about the fact that they're doing this yeah. gag <laughs> and it's written all over his face for the entire interview and even when he starts answering his own question he kind of can't he throws the swig and he, he just does... has this like the cheekiest little smile yeah he does pull himself back together well at the end because he does one where uh, he literally just uh, the, the second he stops answering the question he takes another drink and then gets in another answer and he went the straight face come then but what I don't understand well there's two great moments the other great moment is when Darcy pulls out his second bottle because you think he only has the one and next thing he puts out another <laughs> one but uh, what's the setup? because how did Hook get Hook's, ho- Hook's hooch on the bottle so quickly like he had that actually did he take off a bottle? Did he take off the wrapping of a water bottle and then just turn it inside out and write that on it? I'd say just a piece he... of paper and he like, seems to have acquired like a pen, a piece of paper, and some sellotape. Yeah, very the sellotape. The sellotape is suspicious. All the rest of it would be right in front of him, and a bottle of water as well. And it wouldn't. He literally just has to make the joke, and it all that would only take three seconds. It's how did he stick it on the bottle? Well, he could have, if you wet them and you, if you wet the paper and just stick it to the other paper, it'd hold together for a short enough period. But like, <laughs> this is George Hook. The, the interview only went on for like two minutes. Like, he had to come up with the idea, execute it. It's really well written out, Hook's Hooch. Hooch, Hook's yeah. Hooch. It's hard to say. <laughs> no, in fairness, they were doing it. Not in that, like they went overboard for that interview, but there had been, I think they did it because people were slagging the idea that O'Driscoll was always taking the swig and it was like he was trying to um, promote Powerade uh, during his interview. So there had been previous on it. It obviously hadn't been as kind of obvious or as funny yeah. up until then. So may- maybe he had the joke pre-planned and the lads just absolutely played into it, you know? But can but I talk it- about the panel there? Because Hook comes back, makes his joke. It's pretty funny in fairness. But McGurk can't handle it like he actually can't stop laughing and there's a part of me that's like i don't miss them like i don't miss that panel i feel it's from a different time and i don't know what they really added in a huge way to the coverage but at the same time it is sort of missed isn't it like it was you know it's again it's a different i'm not necessarily saying we should have it now but it was it was just part of the package, I suppose, and it didn't really matter that maybe their analysis was all shock and awe and not, like, nitty-gritty, you know? It's, it's what we were all kind of brought up on, I guess, wasn't it? You know, this analysis that's about the entertainment and what the, the opinions that people have rather than talking about the what ha- actually happened in the game. So, like, we grew up on that with, like, with Dumphy as well and kind of with Brawley in, in GA. So and and Spillane as well to a, like a certain extent. It was like it's what we came, you know, we we like as a nation we had to be weaned off that I guess like a little bit. Yeah, and I'd be furious at the time, but at the same like now it's just I don't know if I even watch it. Mm. At least I was hate watching it, but like yeah, McCurk <laughs> absolutely dying laughing at what was a pretty standard joke you know as if he was the funniest thing he'd ever heard in his life i think that added even more to what the two boys were doing when michael lester as you point out mark what was michael lester doing there um i yeah. i, I love the professionalism of michael of lester in that situation though that like he immediately realizes what's going on here he can have he can have a joke and as well you can see i think you can see that darcy and o'driscoll 
don't want to disrespect Michael Lester. Like they, yeah. they kind of realize maybe we're taking the piss a little bit too much here. You know, we we don't want it to seem like we're, you know, Michael Lester is we're making fun of Lester here as well. And they yeah. maybe they, 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 they were pull back a little Tracy Pizzit, Pickett. <laughs> <laughs> And then RT said to Michael Lester to sort them out, put some manners on them. I, I think as well, uh, in regards to like how Hook got that together pretty quickly, I think Hook had had a go at O'Driscoll the previous week about yeah. drinking from a Powerade bottle. Something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Could be two jokes that just coincided with each other and magic happened. <laughs> and we got our greatest television moment, if not our yeah. greatest rugby moment. Lads, uh, just on the... I mentioned earlier that... Um, Adam Scott won the Players' Championship this week, uh, the 28th of March, in Sawgrass. Podrick Harrington, second place. It was basically a two-way shootout in the end. Harrington, um, he was three shots back going, going into the last day, and or maybe four shots back, and shot a brilliant 66. And then, ultimately, Scott, kind of youngest winner. It was all about him, really. Like He was 23 or something. He was the youngest ever winner of the Players' Championship. And, you know, held a kind of an eight-footer for, to win it by one shot in the end. But for Harrington, I suppose, without getting too much into this, like, this is still four years away from him, uh, or three years away from him winning a major. And he hadn't even won on the PGA Tour yet. So this was kind of, if you're talking about this week in 2004, like, the whole country would have been gripped by this at the time because he here was the guy kind of going over to win in America, something that Irish golfers just weren't doing at the time. And I think it's more, instead of talking too much about Harrington, it's more to me that how spoiled we've been since by the idea of an Irish guy almost winning the Players' Championship would barely even you know get on the radar now. Um, anyway, the football. Look, we've kept you waiting long enough, Mark. Um, you want to talk about the Travis League, but I actually quickly want to talk about the Premier League because it was a massive match that weekend. Uh, between Arsenal and Man United uh, when Thierry Henry did this. Here's Reyes. All right, long way out. Oh, it's crushed in. <laughs> it's another extraordinary goal from Thierry Henry who's been a scourge of Manchester United and of many other clubs. Swerved, confused goalkeeper. 1-0 Arsenal. You watch this ball and watch what the goalkeeper's got. Look at that ball move. Such ferocity in it. He thinks it's going to his right. It's suddenly moved to his left. And it's past him before he can do anything about it. Now, lads, Martin Tyler you know, as he tends to do, according to Liverpool fans, sort of underselling a goal that scored against uh, Manchester United. But I, Thierry Henry blasted it from 25 yards past the hapless Roy Carroll is probably, you know, to me, sums up the early 2000s in the Premier League, where even though United kept winning leagues all the time, they always seemed like they were in mad crisis mode, and Thierry Henry was just the most unstoppable player in history. That goal is class. It... it, it it was like one of the it was a weird goal in that it was about it was easily in reach for Roy Carroll not even diving like literally just if he just had to put his hand out to up to his left he could have saved that ball and he doesn't do it but at the same point you don't hold any blame for him because uh, Henri hit it with the outside of his right boot from just he was just standing over the ball and went oh, do you know what I'm just going to tonk this and it just swerves in mid-air you don't know what way the ball is going to go and it just it smashes straight into the roof of the net it was a great goal. It was um, another great era in, uh, like, we're talking about jerseys and stuff for um, yeah, deliver or for the rugby. It's like that was the United black away kit, Arsenal 
their best home jersey they had in a long time as well. And that, if for some reason, when I think of the United Arsenal rivalry, I always think of United in that black away kit against them. This was one of the less memorable matches, um, albeit that it was on the way to them uh, becoming the Invincibles. But like, then there's yeah. the other one, obviously in Highbury, the more famous one with a uh, John O'Shea lobbing the goalkeeper and the, <laughs> that, the tunnel incident. Is that the Battle of the Buffet? Or was that a different? That one? was was the Battle of the Buffet that, or was that a different? The Battle of the Buffet was that year. I think it was later that year, though. Yeah. yeah, so the uh, next thing that the next time they played this year was when United um beat them. I think wasn't it wasn't it when United beat them, yeah. Because they'd already had the other match at Old Trafford with with when Martin Keown nearly killed Van Nistelrooy and they somehow got away with it. But this was Arsenal's thirtieth game. They were already like they were they were I think they were nine points clear going into the weekend of Chelsea and they ended up seven points clear with eight games to go. So the title wasn't wrapped up, but it was a, there was a feeling that it was kind of okay. And getting a draw at Manchester United wasn't the end of thing, thing or wasn't the end of the world by any means. But uh, everything was just about invincibles at this stage. You know what I mean? We were kind of eight games to go. There was a sort of a sense that they were going to win the league. But PJ, you were you're a lapsed Arsenal fan. Was this kind of the height of things for you? No, you know what? I I think I probably. Yeah. No. Yeah. yeah I, I would. I would have been watching a good bit of this year. All right. Yeah. Um. Although I was, I was kind of, I was preparing for a year, like a year abroad. So I was like, I, I think I was working two jobs at the same time and essentially not seeing a whole lot of football. But what does stand out to me, like one of the things from this game, Mark, you mentioned the jerseys, is Jens Lehmann's top. He looks like he's wearing a high-vis, like an orange high-vis vest over an orange jersey. <laughs> yeah. Lehman was a great purchase there, though, because that team the year before, I can't remember, where did they finish the year before that? But the only difference in that defence was uh, them signing Lehman and then they go on to go the whole season undefeated. I think he's probably slightly underrated as um, as a goalkeeper in, th- in that era of, if you think of like great goalkeepers ever throughout the Premier League, I don't know if you necessarily consider yeah. Lehman. There was a sense that he costed the Champions League a little bit in 2006 as well, you know, in the final against Barcelona. But uh, he was good. There's a lot of kind of watching. We're going to talk about the Chelsea game in a minute when they were hanging on. He made some great saves in that game. Like, but uh, yeah, I think I think just to kind of go back on Henri, as you said, it was a great goal. Henri just in between 2002, 2000, maybe six, just 2005, maybe just such an unstoppable player. And I think kind of I, I think very forgotten about a little bit because of the Paris incident <laughs> that it's like I, I forget personally anyway how much I love them like I just love them like early days of fancy football back when there was like I was playing on like Yahoo and you could you know you got points for like completed passes and stuff like it was like insane how detailed it was way more so than now like it was every little thing that happened in the game and Henri was the greatest player in fancy football history at that time like you know he was just he if he didn't score he did every single other thing uh, that he could possibly do but um can we just take a moment to reflect on it i really enjoyed the way mick you say you pronounce yahoo like you're a lad in a loud on a night out <laughs> is it is it not <laughs> was, yahoo yahoo. yahoo but you called it yahoo <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> i was on yahoo <laughs> yahoo uh, well there you go um the Champions League then. Actually, before I leave that match, by the way, you mentioned Jens Lehmann. Both goalkeepers that day had very kind of uh, 
you know the the haircut that we talked about that was taking over the world uh, when we were talking about the rugby both uh, both way too long Roy Carroll had Brian O'Driscoll esque uh, highlights in there as well so it wasn't just the rugby issue it wasn't just the birth of the rugby fan I think it was the entire world it was basically what the uh, you know the 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 I don't know what's what's the current hairstyle, Mark. You you know these things better than I do. A sick fade at the moment, and I think sick at the time fade, yes, the it was the mop atop. <laughs> exactly, there was no sick fades in two thousand and four. No. Uh, right, Champions League. This is so again. We're talking about the ties in general. The first legs happened this week, two thousand and four. Chelsea knocked Arsenal out of the Champions League with a three-two aggregate win, a two-one win at Highbury. Um, in the second leg where Wayne Bridge scored with three minutes to go it was uh, Arsenal's only defeat obviously um, oh well they, they lost the FA Cup as well that year but they, they, the only defeat in Europe or the Premier League and uh, cost them an unbelievable double or whatever because if you look at the rest of the Champions League there was a great chance they could win it but um, also you had uh, Porto Jose Mourinho's Porto who would go on to win the tournament they beat Leon 4-2 over two legs we had Madrid and Monaco drawing five all in aggregate. Monaco winning three one in the second leg to win an away goals. Raul missing an absolute sitter at the end of the game. Um, that was just an unbelievable tie that has been I for me anyway forgotten about because of the other tie that was happening at that time, which AC Milan bet Deportivo La Coruña four one in the first leg, and then would go on to lose four nil in the second leg. And this was before crazy Champions League comebacks were happening every single year. This was at the time the most unbelievable result that I think I'd ever seen. Uh, Mark, you were talking about how much you loved that AC Milan team. So did I at the time. They were oh. like probably my favourite non-English-speaking football team, I would imagine, um, at the time. And I couldn't believe what I was watching that night. It's mad, especially when you watch, the, like I watched back the first leg, and you think, how did this AC Milan team, there's no way this AC Milan team could ever be beaten. Never mind you beaten 4-0 a couple of weeks later. Like, look, the starting 11 that played against uh, Deportivo in the first leg was Dida in goals, Cafu, Costa-Corta, Maldini, Panero, and then a midfield of uh, Perlo, Gattuso, Seedorf, and Kaka, with Shevchenko and Inzaghi up front. I mean, I don't know how you improve on that. No. Then there's Serginho, Ambrosini, and Rui Costa off the bench, and then John Dal Thomason started the second leg. Uh, instead of Inzaghi, like oh, a couple of the goals, they scored something. They scored their four goals in that first leg in the space of about nine minutes, I think. Uh, Shevchenko's goal is outstanding. He does a. Uh, it's like Dennis Bergkamp's uh, do. Dennis Bergkamp did to Nichols Zabby's ass, except he nutmegs the Porto defender, whilst the ball then goes round another Porto or from the Porto Deportivo Lacaronia defender. So there's definitely one one defender gets gets nutmegged and the ball goes round the other lad. So he knocks it past someone and knocks it through someone at the same time. Then sidesteps, feigns he's going to shoot, cuts it back onto his right, sticks it in the bottom corner. That was the put it, I think that was the third, second or third goal. Kaka scored two, either four or one either side. And then Perlo scored a free kick that just, you know, typical Perlo was outstanding as well. And that's all only from the first leg. Then you have to get to the, <laughs> then you get to the second leg and Walter Pantiani who had scored in the opening one as well, uh, opens the score within a couple of minutes at the start of the second leg, and Deportivo go on, win 4-0 and knock Milan out. Yeah. The, like, uh, the, the great thing from, from that first leg is after every goal, the look on Carlo Ancelotti's face increases in smugness. Yeah. I mean, like, the smugness is at 11, but by the time uh, Pirlo scores that free kick, like, he, he's rightly looking smug as well because the, they're up for, they're up 4-1, the goals are incredible. 
But yeah, it, it's funny to think of that then in the context of what what happens the, the following two weeks after. Yeah, yeah exactly. This Deportivo team were pretty good as well, like you know, and like Valeron, I think, was like at his absolute peak at this stage, and you had. Um, you know, it's Albert so Luke funny looking back. At, I exactly, yeah, and I'm like, you know, as like you, annoyed at the time as someone who kind of loved this Milan team. And you think of it now, and you're like, this would be, this is a great story. We like, if we were watching it now as kind of people in 2020, you'd be so happy that this underdog team in Deportivo La Coruña had made this incredible comeback. And just at the time, I was devastated. And it just shows like a real lack of kind of perspective, I suppose, the way we were watching football back then. You know, oh yeah, but that La Coruña team were class because you had Luca, you had uh, you had Tristan Pandiani, uh, Juan Carlos Valeron, uh, Andrade and Nebet at the back. Like there were lots, there was lots of love on that team as well. A team that would play Shelburne a matter of months later, actually, yeah, and be run quite close. Yeah, with Wesley Houlihan uh, running the show, playing everybody off the park. When exactly. when did uh, Dida's tracksuit? Incredible as well, his tracksuit pants in goal. When did that? <laughs> when did that? When did goalkeepers stop? When did it become unacceptable for goalkeepers to wear tracksuit pants? They, I know, like they, they now wear kind of leggings, but yeah. when did they stop wearing tracksuit pants? Uh, yeah. When Gabor Kiroi or Kiroi kind of property, yeah, uh, when he retired, which isn't that long ago, he was back, wasn't he? With, back at Crystal Palace a few years ago, wearing them, or maybe Joe you know what time is. Time flown by. That's probably near the best part of a decade ago there at this stage. <laughs> but I'm just thinking of it. But, um, yeah, I can't, I can't remember anybody else now that's doing it since. Dimitri Karin, probably the most famous tracksuit bottom wearing uh, goalkeeper. But I don't know, like, the, like Alisson wears like shorts over his now. So he's just like, he's got this kind of like black, layered black kind of look going on mm. um, on the bottom that sort of. I don't know, sometimes a little bit disturbing. Um, the Chelsea-Arsenal game, that's right. Uh, one, I was like, that Chelsea team was like the first year of the Abramovich money, but before he got in Mourinho. And I don't know. I Claudio Ranieri was so hard done by getting rid of him after finishing second in the league, getting rid of, uh, our, um, getting to the semi-finals of the Champions League. They lost to Monaco. Um, in the semi-finals, but like it was so unfair that they got rid. Of and the, I know the that... funniest thing was Ranieri had actually also already signed Ian Robert and Petr Cech, and Ranieri said it was with the plan to play four-three-three with Robert on the right and Duff on the left. So like he actually he was the one that set up the template for Mourinho then to go the following season and win the league. Yeah. And it shows you just like it was literally the, the the two things they needed was to, to replace the goalkeeper and and to get someone on the right there because. Like Jesper Gronkar was, I think, the starting right midfielder on that team. You know, like, but they, other than that, they were just perfect. They were almost there. Damien Duff, uh, in the first half of that second leg game, almost scored an absolute cracker. Like he was just, he just took on three or four lads, picked the ball up on the left, and eventually just kind of hit it wide. He was claiming it was a deflection for a corner, but you forget again, and I, I, again, in the lack of sport at the moment, there's been a lot of kind of Chelsea goals on Premier League years and best Chelsea Premier League goals and so like that and how Duff was involved in so much of what they did in those early years again I think a little bit forgotten about yeah but Ranieri said that his mother used to ring him and say that like just make sure that Jamie Duff just make sure Damien Duff was in the starting team for the weekend that was all she was worried about <laughs> the Chelsea options the goalkeeper options are they're quite striking There's 
uh, a journeyman Italian, Marco Ambrosio, and the subkeeper, Neil Sullivan, former uh, <laughs> for, former Wimbledon <laughs> keeper. Yeah, uh, Marco Ambrosio is a game like I, I haven't thought about that in like a long time. I would not have been able to tell you who the keeper was in this game. No, not I wouldn't have had a clue. As I I did actually. The, in the interest of full disclosure, I kind of glossed over who Peter Check was replacing there uh, as I followed up on Mark's point to get to the uh, to get to the Jesper Gronkar. Little bit of knowledge that I was happy about. But uh, there you go, lads. Have you anything actually, else to say about the 2004 Champions League? It was uh, Scott Parker who started on the right and Gronkar came on in the second leg. Uh, we had Good Johnson, uh, Hassel. I forgot Jimmy Fight. Hasselbank was still there at that stage as well. Yeah, Jesus. At Hernan Crespo. Um, just a quick, a quick one on the Monaco team, because they were the team that I really wanted to win that Champions League when I got down to it. Porto were, yeah, uh, like, they were grand, but Monaco had a bit of madness about Chelsea. them. Um, yeah, they had, uh, they had uh, Jerome Rotten, they had Ludovic Julie, they had uh, Fernando Morientes ended up being top scorer. He was on loan from Real Madrid at the time. And like, that game against Real Madrid, this, like, that it's worth going back and watching the highlights of that second leg because it's mad in two ways. The result is obviously crazy, but there could have been about 14 goals in that game. Like, there was another one ruled out. Raul uh, had a goal ruled out for offside. I think uh, Monaco hit the post twice. Uh, Raul missed a sitter right at the very end as well. And again, you're talking with the Milan team. You're talking with a Real Madrid team that had Roberto Carlos, who was a a devil, not his free kicks. Like he scored whatever it was, one in seven thousand, and it looked class. And you say he was a great free kick taker. But no matter about that, the fact that he was there is a possibility because he would start his run up from twenty yards away. So he was the best dummy free kick taker there's ever been because he'd start his run up and everybody's getting ready for him to tonk it, and then Figo, who was a step away from the ball, would just go and stick it. So uh, he didn't score. I don't think free of that. Just just something to cross my mind. I was watching back from the game. But again, like I said, that team, Zidane was, I don't know how, it was an absolute stonewall penalty at this day and age in second leg as well. He went down to two players and Monaco clapped at him, albeit Zidane had lost control of the ball. But I think today, nowadays, we God, there's contact, so that was penalty. So yeah, there could have been about 15 goals in that game, so it was well worth watching back. I think I'm going to go home now, actually. But I think I'll hold my mat home. But <laughs> when we stop work uh, and just watch back the quarterfinals, semifinals and final of that year. Yeah, and that is, to be honest, the point of this show is to kind of get us, get the juices going, get reminiscing, because you do remember things that happened, but you rarely do actually go and sort of re-experience them, you know, and kind of get back into how just exciting sport is basically every year, to be honest, there's always something. But uh, looking back at 2004, really glad we got to revisit it. Um, Before we go. the rugby and the Champions League. And Mark has one more thing. Trivia. Oh, yeah. Leave you one question. Name the club, the English club, I think it was the Premier League at the time, that Walter Pandiani, uh, quarter-final hero for Deportivo, Deportivo La Coruña, would go on to play for. Wigan? Oh, right colours. Wrong team. Birmingham. Birmingham City, yes. Yeah, I remember now. Birmingham City, by the way, actually, one more little piece from this week in 2004, Mark, just specially for you. Ah, oh, Christ, why did I bring them up? Bur- Birmingham City beat Leeds United 4-1. Uh, Leeds United weren't were three points off uh, safety at the time. They were in 19th. Went 1-0 up after a second-minute mark for Duke goal, and you're thinking, there was I, I, that season, there was a few times you thought Leeds were about to get going, and it all just absolutely collapsed into them. Uh, Birmingham, I think Dugarry got two goals. Mikel Birmingham, 
Mikel Forsell. My yeah. God, I'd forgotten about Mikel Forsell. They won 4-1. Leeds never got out of the relegation zone. Ended up getting relegated. And they haven't been in the Premier League since. And then just as it looked like likely, the world <laughs> shuts setup. down. I'm telling you. The world shuts down. What a way to finish this show. Whoa, this whoa, week whoa we're not finished yet. Just to make everyone feel really old here. <laughs> Born this month in 2004. Teenage tennis superstar Coco Goff. Oh, Christ. <laughs> oh my god. Also, also, this is this is this year this time we were we were a month after the release of the final film of The Lord of the Rings. And Jeez. the world was amid the controversy of uh Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. There you go. There you go. The uh, here, just on me. Did The Lord of the Rings set the trend for this these haircuts? Maybe. They were, they were all like uh, Viggo Mortensen's character. Viggo Mortensen, but I'm thinking more of the hobbits. I'm thinking more of the kind of the, the, the curly kind of long hair uh, sort of wiped out of the eyes, Sam and Frodo. I, that You wouldn't be too far off what uh, Roy Carroll or Brian O'Driscoll's haircut is if you look at those two. It's the first time I, th- I think Brian O'Driscoll, O'Driscoll was going for the Samwise Gamgee. <laughs> it's the first time very, Brian O'Driscoll famously has very hairy feet as well. That's how you have to go. <laughs> and we'll have to leave it on that. The headline for this week in 2004, Brian O'Driscoll famously has very hairy feet. That's from PJ Brown. Thanks a million to Mark and PJ. I hope you enjoyed looking back on this week in 2004. We'll be back next week with next week in a year yet to be decided. We'll find out. If you have any suggestions for us on what happens next week, first week in April, uh, please do send them on to us, um, the gaffer at balls.e. And if you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe and please do give us a rating. It really helps us. And it's nice to know that you're listening as well. So please do that. And we'll talk to you soon.